Good morning. Let's go to the Lord in a time of prayer. Father, as we've just sung, this is our prayer that we would know you more. We want to set Christ before us, that he would shine forth more brightly, that all the things in our life, even the good things, would pale in comparison, for they are meaningless apart from you, for you give us life, you give us breath, you give us purpose, you give us meaning. And so, Father, we pray this morning, as we turn to your word, that we would see more and more of Christ, that our union with him would be bound so tightly by the power of the Spirit, that we would see the love of the Father through Christ and that it would knit us together as a fellowship of believers as we offer our lives as living sacrifice. For we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. In the year 1507, there was a young Catholic priest by the name of Martin Luther who was performing his first Mass. Having been ordained as a priest a a few months earlier, Martin's father had come to witness this first Mass. Now, Martin's father was not pleased that he had become a priest. He would rather have him have become a lawyer. But he had eventually come to terms with it, and uh, Martin was one of the top students in his class. And so, Martin's father gathered 20 of his close companions to come and witness this first Mass. Now, to the church at this time, the Mass was the focal point of the means of grace, the church's means of grace. The sacrifice of Jesus on Calvary was reenacted as Catholics believed in transubstantiation. You may have heard that big word before. Let me explain what it is. Transubstantiation is the belief that the elements of the bread and the wine are somehow miraculously, supernaturally transformed into the actual body and blood of Jesus Christ during this prayer of consecration, which can only be offered by one who has gone through holy orders and has been consecrated as a priest, as Luther had been. That is the only way that the miracle of transubstantiation can take place according to the Catholic Church. And so Luther, through the years of study and preparation, had been getting ready for this moment. This is the apex. This is the pinnacle of all that he had been trained for. It was not the preaching of the Word. It was not the the reading of, of Scripture. It was for the Mass. And then after the consecration happens, this son of a coal miner in the hands of this son of a coal miner would not be common elements of bread and wine, but would actually be the holy body and blood of Christ in his mind according to what he had been taught when, the, when these words had been uttered. And so everyone is waiting for Luther to say these words of consecration. They're almost at the edge of their seats. And he comes to that point in the Mass, and here he is 
obviously proven himself to be so well-spoken, so articulate, even arrogant at many times. And all of a sudden, he froze. His, his mouth opened and his lips moved, but there were no words coming out, and people were almost leaning forth in their seats, willing the words to come out of his mouth. His father was sitting there hiding his face in embarrassment that his son couldn't even get through this simple celebration of the, of the Mass that he had memorized and rehearsed thousands and thousands of times. Everyone simply thought he had forgotten the words, but he didn't forget the words. And so he finally just sort of mumbled them and, and, and rapidly completes the Mass, and, and, and he leaves the chancel, and, and he's just feeling profoundly embarrassed. He would later explain that it wasn't a mental lapse, but rather he began to contemplate the idea that this one sinful human being would dare to have the audacity to hold in his filthy hands the precious body and blood of Christ. Luther was so overcome with his unworthiness that he froze at that moment. Unworthiness, sin, those are our obstacles between us and a holy God. And Luther understood the infinite chasm between creator and creation. In order for there to be a relationship between the two, there must be reconciliation. Reconciliation. And that brings us perfectly to our topic this morning as we look at the priest in our series of prophet priest, and king, the three anointed offices of Jesus the Christ. Now, when I say priest or priesthood, what do many of you think of, I wonder? I think some of you think of this picture that I'm showing you. This was me at uh, our church in Australia, and we had an early morning service at 8 o'clock. It was very traditional. And so I would wear my priestly vestments, and I looked very holy in them. <laughs> but I think as we, as, we think of, uh, as we think of what a priest is, we do. We get these images and pictures of, uh, of priests in the Catholic Church. Uh, we think of people who mediate the means of grace, confession to a priest, absolution through a priest, a, a holy man, uh, such as this gentleman himself here. <laughs> but we ask ourselves, what are the origins? What is the origin of the priesthood? And we go all the way back to Genesis once again, as we did last week looking at the prophets. And again, we turn to the days of Abraham, and we come across this mysterious figure in chapter 14 of Genesis. Abraham has just rescued his nephew Lot uh, who was caught up in this war between ancient kings in the region, and, and, and Lot, who had 
distanced himself from Abraham. He was moving his tents closer and closer to Sodom so that when this uh, uh, rivalry and war between these kings took place, uh, a kingdom came through and and wiped out the cities, and and Lot ends up getting caught up uh, as possession of these kings. And, and, And so Abraham takes 318 of his best trained men, and he goes in, and he defeats these other kingdoms, and he he rescues Lot and all the possessions that that came with that. And the king of Sodom, who was one of the defeated kings in the earlier battle, he comes out into the valley to meet with Abraham. And in this chapter 14 of Genesis, there is another king who is present. His name is Melchizedek. And the Scripture notes that he is also priest of God Most High. And Melchizedek brings bread and wine, and he blesses Abraham, and Abraham in turn gives a tenth of all of his possessions to Melchizedek. And then just as mysteriously as he appeared in the story, Melchizedek disappears from the story. But this is the first time we really see priest and the term priest used in Scripture, and we will come back to him later. But we ask the question, what is the role of a priest? What does a priest do? Well, the priest is the opposite of a prophet. The prophet, if you will remember, represents God to the people. And so he's the voice of God, the mouthpiece of God, and he represents God to the people. Well, the prophet is the exact opposite. Sorry, the priest is the exact opposite. The priest represents the people back to God represents the people back to God. And so, as the nation of Israel begins to grow while they are in Egypt, and and Moses, as prophet, leads the people out of slavery, God sets up this office of priest, of priesthood. And we read about it in Exodus chapter 28, verse 1. God has given Moses on instructions on the construction of the tabernacle. And if you're familiar with these passages, it's very detailed and ornate. There, there are all these curtains of uh, creating separation, and, and, and it's really depicting the holiness of God and the, the separateness between man and God. And we have this image of of angels and cherubim sewn into this great curtain. And the Lord says to Moses, Then bring near to you Aaron your brother and his sons with him from among the people of Israel to serve me as priests, Aaron and Aaron's sons. So the role of priest was passed down through the family line, through the line of Aaron. This is where we get the term the Aaronic priests. They are of Aaron's line. And then after the golden calf incident in the wilderness, the Levites are given to Aaron and his sons to help serve. And what was the job of the priests specifically? They guarded God's house and they served God's people. They guarded God's house and they served God's people. And their role was most certainly tied to the sacrifice. The sacrifice. Their job had to do with officiating the temple sacrifices and offering those prescribed sacrifices according to the law. 
So then we're left with the question, okay, then why are sacrifices necessary? What is their purpose? Well, we said that the priesthood began with Melchizedek, but really the, the role of priest goes all the way back to the beginning. It goes all the way back to Adam in the garden, though he's not given the term priest. Adam in Eden is a type of priest king. God crowns him with honor and glory, and he, he authorizes him to, to subdue and to rule the land, and he gives him uh, priestly instructions for serving in the garden temple. But when Adam sinned and fell short of God's glory, God expelled him from God's garden sanctuary, destroying any chance of Adam serving as priest king. It was Adam's sin that also made sacrifice necessary because death was the punishment for sin, if you remember. Blood must be shed to atone, right? Atone. If you have trouble with that word, just break it down. At one. It's a making at one meant back with God. It's an atoning. It's a covering. Blood must be shed. And we get this image in Genesis chapter 3. One, we get the image of Adam and Eve are trying to cover themselves with cheap cover-ups. They're using fig leaves to cover themselves, their nakedness, their shame, and God has to shed the blood of an animal to properly cover them, to atone for what they've done. But also in Genesis 3, we get this image of a cherubim with a flashing sword as the guard that Adam failed to be. And it's the image that will be on the curtain in the temple, protecting the Holy of Holies where only the high priest has access and makes sacrifice once a year at the Day of Atonement in Israel's history. And so the rest of Scripture is really this searching out of a mediator where Adam had failed. Who will be this mediator? Who could go and stand before God and represent us? This is Job's issue in chapter 9 of his book when he cries out, there is no arbiter between us who may lay his hand on us both. Now, the priesthood, it continues down the line through Israel's history, and it sinks lower and lower and lower into failing to do their job. In fact, often Israel's history is linked with the failure of the priests and also the kings, as we'll see next week. But we see this most clearly in the book of 1 Samuel in chapter 2, where the sons of Eli, who was the high priest at that time, his two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, they abused the role of priest. In fact, Scripture says that they did not know the Lord. What a, what a condemning word to be a priest of God Most High and not even know the Lord. They were sleeping around with women. They treated the sacrifice with contempt, and so they brought on the judgment of God. But as is often the case in Scripture, when things seem the worst, when they feel like they're just at the very bottom, it, this cannot get any worse. The priests have been total failures. Throughout Scripture, we always see this. At its lowest point, God reveals a 
prophecy, a look to the future, the fact that there is a hope, the fact that there is something that will come, that will be better. And we read that in this exact same chapter as we read about Hophni and Phinehas in 1 Samuel chapter 2 and verse 35, the promise of a new priesthood from God. And we read these words, and I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who shall do according to what is in my heart and in my mind. And I will build him a sure house, and he shall go in and out before my anointed forever. In Psalm 110, we see a, a, a glimpse of this representative of God to come when, when, when David says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Then David describes this person as a king. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. But then he shifts the language. And he uses a, a new language for this representative. And he says, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. And so now we've gotten imagery of king and priest coming to us, of the one who will make things right. Now, I wonder if you would take a minute and just put yourself in, in Old Testament shoes. Uh, put yourself in their situation. And think about what the priest is doing, what the priest is offering, and think about how that would relate to you. What, 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 what things would you be learning from what you're visualizing, okay? The priest is in the temple. He's making sacrifices, morning and evening sacrifices. There's special sacrifices where the, the high priest once a day, one year, one day out of the year, goes behind the Holy of Holies and makes atonement for the nation, what are we picking up from this? I, I, I think one thing would be, my goodness, our sin is great. My goodness, our sin is great. You know, you think of the Pharisee and the publican who go to the temple to pray, and, and what, what, the, what is the, the Pharisee's praying, and he's proud of himself, and he's thinking of himself, and his eyes are kind of all over the place, and the publican's head is down. He's probably looked, and he's seen the altar. Think of this altar. Just picture it. It's it, it stained with blood. The, the, the proliferation of blood in what takes place in the work of the priests. They're putting blood on their fingers and toes and they're splashing it on the people and there's just blood everywhere. And you'd be thinking, oh, oh, we need such a covering. My sin is so great. I don't even know if there's enough animals in the world to cover for, for all of my sin alone, let alone the whole nation, and really the rest of the world. The second thing you might be coming across is this cannot continue. This, this shedding of, of animal blood, it just feels so inadequate, it's, and we're doing it constantly. There must be something greater. And so they keep reading these prophecies of, of a prophet who will come, who will be forever, and they're thinking there must be a better way. And so keeping on that track, uh, uh, line of thinking, but slightly shifting your focus just slightly, I want to play a sound for you and see if you have any recollection of what this might be. I think most of you recognize this based on your laughter. At 9 o'clock, about three people laughed, and I couldn't tell <laughs> if that was because they stayed up late to watch TCU or, or, or what was going on. But 
Now, some of you are confused, and you have absolutely no idea what that sound is, and I will enlighten you in all my grand wisdom with, without my robes on. That is the sound of dial-up internet. Dial-up internet. It was slow. It was cumbersome. It would freeze. It would drop. It was terrible. Uh, but it served its purpose for its time. It connected people to the internet for the first time and, 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 and put information and, and, and things at our fingertips that w- would have taken much longer. Uh, research papers were going to go a lot faster. There was less time in the, uh, in the library, which might be a bad thing. But, you know, most IT people probably had this idea, and they knew that it wouldn't always be like this. It wouldn't always be like this. And so today, what do we have? We have Wi-Fi. We have high-speed Internet. Let me play you a sound of what our Internet sounds like now. Exactly. <laughs> you, every single one of you can turn on your phones, and if you do it, I'm going to be upset with you. But I'm saying you can have the potential to all turn on your phones and look at things and have information and have access to communications that we would never have been able to do. In fact, just the other day, Jeff Falkowski told me that he bought a 100-foot-long telephone cable back in the day, and he would plug his phone line in, and then he could roam around the house with his laptop computer. You know, now we would laugh at that. You're still tethered to something. But now we have high-speed internet. We have fiber-optic cables. We, we, we have satellite uh, internet. We, we have all of these things that are capable of so much more so much more than just a little landline copper cable phone plug through the phone system to a modem. What we have is better and fuller and richer. The new has supplanted the old. But can you believe that there are people out there that are still using that dial-up internet? My goodness, are they lost. Do they even know what they're missing out on? They probably still hear, you've got mail, as soon as all that sound goes through. Imagine trying to explain what we have now to someone who's been stuck on dial-up internet. Just the beauty and the access and the freedom of information that we have now, the, the, the speed with which it all comes. And again, that is what is happening in the book of Hebrews as the author or the the preacher, really, of Hebrews explains how much better the new covenant is. And so we consider priests then, priests then, representing man to God, guarding the house of God, serving the people of God, offering sacrifice, daily sacrifice. But it was temporary, like dial-up internet. And so we turn to priest-fulfilled, priest fulfilled. Hebrews chapter 5 shows us what qualifies a good high priest. One, he represents man to God. Hebrews chapter 5 verse 1, for every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God. Before I go on to the next point, I just want to point out that, that, that the necessity of the priesthood, the necessity of the priesthood, uh, that there was, you, you needed this intermediary, this mediator to, to, 
to make you right before God. You, you needed the, the blood sacrifice. You needed to see that and witness that. Secondly, he is appointed by God. Hebrews chapter 5, verse 4, no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. Third, he offers sacrifices for sins. And fourth, he makes intercession for the people, as you can read in Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25. And the, the whole book of Hebrews is making the argument that only Jesus the Christ, the anointed one, fulfills this role. Now, I know that that comes as a shock to you. Ah, 9 a.m. didn't get that joke either. It doesn't come as a shock to you, right? You, you, you're expecting the preacher to get up and say, Jesus is the way. Jesus is the answer, right? Because he is. <laughs> because that's the truth. I'd be lying to you if I were to say, your works are what will make you right before God. God forbid that that would ever be preached from this pulpit. No, no, it is that Jesus is the answer. But the question we are asking is how? How is he the answer? How does he fulfill this role of priest, which, again, we need so desperately? We need a priest. And so we come back to our mysterious figure, Melchizedek, and we see that Jesus is the only high priest in the order of Melchizedek, the only priest king, what, what Adam failed to do. And what Melchizedek was mysteriously, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. That line is repeated so many times in the book of Hebrews. Again, Hebrews chapter 7, we read, for Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him, Abraham apportioned a tenth of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness. And then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. So he's king of righteousness, he's king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues as a priest forever. And so he is in the order of Melchizedek, which is higher than the Aaronic priesthood. It is higher than the Levitical priesthood because, as Hebrews says, Abraham pays the tithe to Melchizedek. And what does that represent? Who's inside of Abraham's body? Aaron and Levi are in the body, in the loins of Abraham, so to speak. Therefore, Melchizedek is of a higher order of priest than them. And as we'll look at next week, it's why Jesus is not from the tribe of Levi. He's from the tribe of Judah. But what else? What else are we, do we need to know? Do we need to understand about this priest the, the, the way that Christ fills this role of priest. Well, he mediates a better covenant than the old covenant. He is a priest who is indestructible. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 23, the former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he, Christ, holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever 
Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. He, he offers one sacrifice once, unlike the priests before him who had to offer sacrifices every day. And not only uh, for the people, but for themselves as well. That's another failure of the priests, inability of the priests. Again, it was temporary. It, it, it was only meant to go so far. The, the, the priests in the Old Testament days could never uh, uh, reconcile you all the way to God. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. He is eternal. His sacrifice was perfect. Hebrews 9.11 says, But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with human hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places. Not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood. This securing their redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purifying our consciousness from dead works to the living God? The, the, those sacrifices in the Old Testament system, they, 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 they atoned, they expiated the, the guilt of the sin of the people, though that sacrifice was in the form of the animal who was offered to God. Even if the priests themselves had, had offered their bodies as a sacrifice, right? This is what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13. Even if I offer myself as a burnt sacrifice, if I do not have love, it is for nothing. But in this case, it wouldn't matter anyway because the priest is a, is a sinful person. He has sin in his own life. He needs that sin to be atoned for when he makes sacrifice. He has to sacrifice on behalf of himself and then on behalf of the people. And so even that would fall short. And then we think of the psalmist who, who records for us the prophetic words of the Messiah himself, and he takes it further. Sacrifice and offering you did not desire. Burnt offerings and sin offerings you did not require. Then I said, here I am. I have come. It is written about me in the scroll. I desire to do your will. Oh, my God, your law is within my heart, Psalm 40. The Messiah indicates that his own coming sacrificial death will supersede the Old Testament sacrificial system. He is a better priest. He is the fulfillment of the, of the role of priest. But, but within this framework, as we said last week, he is not just a priest. He is not just the priest. He is also the temple where the sacrifice is made, and, and he is the sacrifice himself. He is the sacrifice himself. Going all the way back to the Garden of Eden again where the blood had to be shed of that animal for the sin of Adam. When Abraham was going to offer Isaac 
in obedience to God, and God provided a ram with, catch this, his head caught in thorns. When the priest would, would place sin on, on two goats, and, and one goat was released to the wilderness to, to take the sins of the people out, cast it out, and on the other, the blood was shed as a sacrifice, when the Israelites placed the blood of the lamb on, the, on their doorposts at Passover, protecting them from the final plague on Egypt, protecting the life of the firstborn son. All of this, beloved, is looking forward to the question, not just where is the priest who fulfills what we need. Where is the priest who was prophesied? But it asks the question, where is the lamb? Where is the lamb? It's Isaac's question of his father as they go up Mount Moriah. We've got the wood, we've got the fire. Father, where is the lamb? Where is the lamb for the sacrifice? And that question echoes all the way through the Old Testament. And then in stark color and vibrancy, we see it is the anointed prophet priest and king who will march up the mountain as the lamb himself. John the baptizer says, behold the lamb of God who takes away the sin of one? No. Who takes away the sin of a family? No. Who takes away the sin of a nation? No. Who takes away the sin of what? The world. And that death on that cross fulfilled countless prophecies. But what it did is it took what animal sacrifices never could. It took the sins of people from the past, from that present moment and into the future. All those who would find themselves in Christ. And it covered and it atoned for our sin. It was a propitiation, as Jeremy said, a propitiation that it took the wrath that was deserved for us, and Christ drank that cup of wrath because we could never, never, never stand before holy God in our iniquity, in our sin, there must be blood shed for atonement, for covering, for sacrifice, to reconcile us, to, to make us right. And it must be a sacrifice capable of covering all of God's people for all of time. And the only one who could enter the holy of holies 
and tear that curtain of separation between God and man, the one on which the depiction of the cherubim was sewn, guarding the garden as the cherubim did, showing the failure of what Adam couldn't do. Only this priest king could render and rip that curtain in half, making access to the Father available through the sacrifice himself, the priest, the sacrifice. Only Jesus, only the Christ. And this was always God's plan. This was not, oh, you know, Israel messed up and, and now I have to figure out another plan. No, this was always the plan from the beginning. And God in His patience, as Abraham failed, as blood sacrifice after blood sacrifice is offered up, God knows that it would be the perfect priest Himself God the Son in human flesh would look at his rebellious people through the window of time and calls us to himself, washes us clean, and calls us sons and makes us his bride, something we could never do on our, on our own, so, something we could never achieve through the blood of bulls and goats and and. and and weak priests. And he is both priest and sacrifice because it shows us the, that he wasn't offered as sacrifice on, only on behalf of someone else, though he was sent by the Father, but he is also the priest in that he has to offer himself up willingly. It was always his desire to do that. It was always the plan between the Godhead, the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit that this would be the way that it would happen. Priests then. Priests fulfilled. Priests now. Because that's not the end of the story. As beautiful as that picture is, as much as we love that, as much as we love celebrating that on Easter, it's not the end of the story. And just as the prophetic work of Christ didn't cease when he completed his earthly ministry, so neither has his priestly work. Though Christ took his place at the right hand of the Father because his redemptive work was complete, as we read about in Hebrews chapter 11, Jesus the Christ now, in, in connection and in link with the sacrifice, now he intercedes on our behalf. He intercedes for us when we sin. So we read in 1 John chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, when John says, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteousness. And so while we're correct to, to, to focus on what Christ has done for us as our high priest, we must not forget those things that he's doing for us even now. He prays for our sanctification. John 17, verse 17, Father, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. He goes to prepare a place for us. John chapter 14, in my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? But that's not all. 
When Christ ascends on high as a, as a royal priest in heaven, he sends forth his spirit to anoint a people for priestly service. He raises up priests. That is to say, just as the Spirit anointed Christ, we think of the baptism when John baptizes Jesus and the Spirit descends on him like a dove. Just as that takes place, so now after Pentecost, Jesus baptizes his disciples with the Spirit, sealing them in their salvation and empowering them for a priestly service of evangelism and discipleship and, 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 and the sacrifice. What is the sacrifice for us? For we are priests. What's our sacrifice? Romans 12, it's our very lives are a sacrifice to him. It is the Holy Spirit, therefore, is the one who makes the church a, a, a holy nation, a royal priesthood, sent out to proclaim the mercies of God, not to keep it to ourselves. You'd be a bad priest. Remember, the priest served the people. And so we've been given this truth, as Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 2, you, believers, are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. And so in this way, the priesthood of Christ produces a family of royal priests, purified by his blood, qualified by the work of his spirit, and there's no special class of people who can mediate the means of grace. This is ultimately what drove Martin Luther out of the Catholic Church. He, he was trying to be his own mediator. And he, he, he knew he couldn't do it. It's why he couldn't say the words of consecration at his Mass. We don't need to go to a priest to have our sins forgiven, we already have a great high priest. In fact, this is what Luther would later say. He is our advocate. He intercedes for us and says, Father, I have suffered for this person. I am looking after them. This prayer cannot be in vain, in Hebrews 4, we read, what a great, uh, we have a great high priest. But even though we have had Christ as our high priest, advocate, mediator, reconciler, and comforter, yet we have fled for refuge to the saints. He's talking about praying to the saints to have access to God. And we have regarded Christ as judge. Accordingly, this text should be written with gold letters and should be painted in the heart Therefore, you should get understanding and say, Christ, I know you alone as the advocate, the comforter, and the mediator, and I do not doubt that you are such a person for me, but cling firmly to this with my heart and believe. And beloved, because we have union with Christ, because we have been put in relationship with him, we are that royal priesthood of believers. Have you ever thought about that, that you are a priest? 
You don't have to dress up silly to make that be true. You are a priest offering yourselves as a living sacrifice. Priests then, a picture of the need to cover our sins, the, the, the picture of the inadequacy of, 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 of what the blood of animals would do. Priests fulfilled the, the, the priest of the highest order who himself does not even need to atone for his own sin but becomes himself the priest and the sacrifice. He is made sin, making a covering for all those that are drawn to him. Priests now, He continually makes intercession for us as our great high priest. He sent his Holy Spirit sealing us, making us a priesthood of believers through that union with Christ, offering our lives as a living sacrifice. The the, the writer of Hebrews gives us the clearest indication of what all this means. Just bear with me. I know the children are crying, and that means you need to be quiet, preacher. Be quiet. (laughs) Hear these words as we... Prepare to conclude. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. I have a dear friend who, who, who very much in his life was living for himself, all about himself. What, what could he do to make his life better? What could he do to enjoy the most out of life? It was all self-focused, only self-focused. And his lifestyle reflected his attitude, and so he would participate in all the things that he thought would bring him joy. And then along the way, God disrupted his path. And maybe that's your story with how God radically saves. And this brother was radically saved, and now he lives for fellowship and communion and worship with believers. Why? Because he got all of this, and he got it in himself. He understood. It was in his mind. It was in his heart. It was in his being. He he understood he recognized Christ as that, that once and for all sacrifice. He, he recognized the, the, the continual intercession of Christ on his behalf. And that, brothers and sisters, transformed him. And so now his desire is for more of Christ, more of Christ in his personal devotional time, more of Christ in his corporate devotional worship time as a body of believers. The priests serve the people of God, offering themselves as a living sacrifice. Let us pray. (coughs) Father, we have access to this good news, and you have told us how blessed we are that we live in this church age in which we understand these things. They're no longer mysteries to us. 
And yet sometimes, Lord, we live as if we're just like the people of Israel who, who have had only a few things revealed to them. And so we go back looking for the things that attract us, and we go back looking for uh, some other form of intercession. We look for, for someone to stand in our place when it has been Christ all along. It has been Christ who makes us right with you. It has been Christ who is making intercession for us when we sin. It is Christ who has covered our sin. It is Christ who laid down his life. It is Christ who raised from the dead. It is Christ. It is all about him. And yet we try and make it about something else. And so, Father, it is our prayer, just as it was at the beginning, that you would help make much of Christ in our lives, that we would be like this young man who was living for self and thinking only of self, and that in that radical transformation, you change our hearts, and you help us to see the the, the community that you've put us in, that you help us to love and serve one another as we act as priests, a royal priesthood set apart for your work that we would offer our lives as a living sacrifice. For we pray this only because of the name of Christ. Amen.